Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Here we go. Another busy day. Glad you've joined us. Thanks for letting us be part of your day. Supreme Court hearing yesterday. Oral arguments on small refinery exemptions to the RFS. Tough questioning by the Supreme Court justices to both sides. We'll get some reaction today from Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. How does he think it went? And is he optimistic about the final ruling to come a few weeks from now. We'll talk about taxes today with Danielle Beck with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. President Biden proposing to impose higher capital gains taxes on inherited assets, but promises protection for farms and other family-owned businesses that continue in operation. We'll talk about that with Danielle Beck, and we will get a planting update from the state of Nebraska a little bit later as we'll check in with Greg Anderson. But we'll start things off talking about the news of the day with Will Stafford, Washington representative for CHS. Will, thanks for joining us. Wow, there's a lot going on. There sure is. Busy time in, in our nation's capital. Thanks for having me back on the show. Uh, let's talk about the president going to be talking uh, to the country tonight, uh, talking about in uh, his plan, uh, another big spending plan, and with that will go taxes to pay for it. Um, everyone kind of looking to see how this is going to impact them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, as you said, there's been a lot of spending going on, um, whether that was from the uh, uh, coronavirus assistance bills that have been passed through Congress um, or the president's infrastructure plan and, and a couple other bills um, that go hand in hand with that. And like anybody, um, we're interested to hear how they plan on paying for that as well, um, whether it's touching the, the uh, capital gains tax or whether it's uh, doing something to the corporate tax rate um, or other plans to pay for infrastructure as well. Um, we're, we're very interested to see how that lands. Another $1.8 trillion proposed uh, spending. So, yeah, there has to be some way to come up with that money, so we will see. Meanwhile, what reaction are you hearing to this uh, 30 by 30 plan as far as meeting climate goals? Yeah, so that stems from an executive order that was aimed at tackling climate change uh, that includes a goal of conserving 30% of the nation's land and water by the year 2030, hence the 30 by 30 name. Um, farmer, farmers and agriculture groups have had some very understandable questions about this and what it would mean. Uh, how will USDA define conservation? Uh, by what measure will they use to define success? Um, and it's also understandable that farmers will want to make sure that the administration doesn't overlook the incredible strides that they've already uh, been making um, to, uh, to reach conservation goals on their own. Uh, so Secretary Vilsack has, in, has insisted that this is not some sort of land grab. Uh, in my conservations with USDA, they've emphasized that voluntary incentives, collaboration with private landowners, locally led conservation efforts are going to be at the heart of the 30 for 30 effort. And they have said that there's going to be a public report forthcoming soon that's going to lay out uh, their high-level principles and next steps for the plan um, that should put folks' mind at ease. But like everyone else, um, we're waiting to look, uh, waiting to see what the details of it mean. Yeah, my conversations with USDA similar. They're, they are very much pushing back against this uh, concept of any kind of a land grab, and uh, 
they are looking at it more. They're saying it's going to be the voluntary approach that agriculture wants. I think my question is, if you're going to keep increasing some of these programs, like CRP, you're going to try to get another 4 million acres in there. Are there 4 million acres out there that are what you would consider environmentally sensitive enough that they should be in there and not land that uh, otherwise would be good producing land uh, with proper you know, care and conservation efforts? That uh, Are you taking that land out of production? I think that's a question that uh, many have. Yeah, and, and we would have the same questions for them, and I think the devil's going to be in the details. Like you said, um, you know, we appreciate having land in production, um, especially right now with crop prices being uh, so good. Um, we also always have fears that an increase in the CRP acreage here in America just means there'll be an increase in crop production in other countries like Brazil. Um, so certainly, you know, something like an increase in CRP acres is something that we would have um, concerns about, but we'll just have to wait and see what some of the details look like. What are you hearing on the infrastructure plan? Now, the Republicans came back with a more targeted approach, less money, but still quite a bit of money, but more things that we traditionally would call infrastructure. Uh, so we have these two approaches. What's happening there? They're still working out how they're going to move that, that package through Congress. I think it's going to be uh, pretty much one of the major conversations that they're having up on Capitol Hill um, throughout the summer and possibly throughout the rest of uh, this calendar year. Um, like you said, Republicans want uh, a package that is much more your classic infrastructure, your roads, bridges, um, rail, things like that. Um, Democrats obviously want more involved. And I think uh, many folks on both sides of the aisle are probably looking at uh, an infrastructure package as being one of the only major um, pieces of legislation that moves this year. And therefore, they're looking at it as one of the only vehicles uh, this calendar year before we move into an election year next year uh, to get their priorities uh, passed. And what's happening with the Growing Climate Solutions Act? Sure. So that was reintroduced by Senator Stabenow and Senator Braun from Indiana um, this year. They have had a similar piece of legislation that they introduced last year. Um, it's also been co-sponsored by the top Republican in the Senate Ag Committee, Senator Bozeman, um, this time around as well. So that bill aims to break down barriers for farmers to participate in carbon markets. Specifically, it instructs USDA to establish technical assistance providers um, to help farmers transition to carbon, carbon smart practices. It also instructs USDA to create a third-party verifier certification program to ensure transparency and integrity throughout the program. Um, it has massive bipartisan support on the Senate side. Almost half the Senate at this point um, has signed on as co-sponsors. It passed unanimously last week by voice vote in the Senate Agriculture Committee, and it sounds like it may receive floor time in the full Senate in the coming weeks or months. Uh, there is a House companion bill. Um, that has been introduced by uh, Congresswoman Spanberger from Virginia and Congressman Bacon from Nebraska. Um, it seems like it's moving a little bit more slowly in the House right now than it is in the Senate. Um, but this looks like it's a piece of legislation that could have legs to move this year um, and is uh, certainly endorsed by a lot of major uh, farm and agriculture groups. Wow, there is so much going on, a lot of big numbers flying around. It's hard to keep it all straight, but we'll try here, and we appreciate your help, Will. Thanks a lot. Yep, anytime, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Always good to talk with you. Thank you. Will Stafford, CHS Washington representative. So you got these 
different plans out there and tax proposals out there. We're going to talk more about that a little bit later on. But up next, the big Supreme Court case concerning biofuels. The case involves a ruling issued more than a year ago by the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, which struck down three exemptions for the renewable fuel standard and also created a new uh, uh, criteria for the EPA to follow when considering future waivers. The Supreme Court justices hit both sides pretty hard with their questioning yesterday. We'll find out how the renewable fuels industry feels, how it went, as Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, joins us next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, diesel that doesn't mess around. When it comes to the crops you plant, we know that you want to maximize the yield of each seed. In order to do that, you need every plant to emerge on the same day. The problem is, you don't know if this is actually happening. We understand what it's like to be in the cab at harvest, wondering why a field is yielding lower than expected, which is why we're offering you our free emergence flagging kit. Here's how it works. Go to precisionplanting.com forward slash free and request your free emergence flagging kit. We'll send you a kit that includes multiple colored flags, a seed digger, and instructions. The first day your plants start coming up, follow the kit instructions to flag the new emergers each day. You'll gain a much clearer picture of how consistently your plants are emerging. Get your free emergence flagging kit today at precisionplanting.com forward slash free. Don't wait. Kits are limited. That's precisionplanning.com forward slash free for your free emergence flagging kit. A cold front can slow the world to a crawl, but with Cenex Premium Diesel, your fleet can power through. Cenex Roadmaster XL Seasonally Enhanced comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn, optimizing cold weather performance over typical number two diesel. So rather than complaining about the cold, own it with Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel diesel that doesn't mess around. Adams on Agriculture. Conversations with policymakers, the movers and shakers in the ag industry, the pros and cons of issues important to you, cutting through the spin to get to the heart of a topic and giving you the information you need to know. Every weekday, Mike Adams brings you guests important to the ag industry. It's quite simply information farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Do you know how to keep food safe at home? Clean, separate, cook, and chill. The easy lessons of clean, separate, cook, and chill will help you protect your family and be food safe. Let's talk about how to chill. First, keep the fridge at 40 degrees or below to keep bacteria from growing. Use an appliance thermometer to be sure things are cool. Then, chill leftovers and takeout foods within two hours and divide food into shallow containers for fast cooling. And always thaw meat, poultry, and seafood in the fridge, not on the counter, and never overstuff the fridge. Food safety risks at home are more common than most people think. The USDA is your partner in being food safe. Clean, separate, cook, and chill. For more information, visit BeFoodSafe.gov or call 1-888-MP-HOTLINE.
Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. With Cenex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, the date of April 27th had been circled on a lot of calendars for some time now. That was the day for the big Supreme Court hearing on the uh, waiver issue for the renewable fuel standard. Well, we had an interesting session before the Supreme Court as justices had some hard questions, uh, a hard line of questioning for both sides, both the refiners and the biofuels industry. Here to talk about it is Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Jeff, what was your takeaway? Well, thanks for having me, Mike. It, it was indeed a big day for the ethanol industry. I think, as you know, uh, the exemptions that EPA had been freely handing out to refiners in recent years have, have taken a real toll on our market and, and destroyed really any opportunity for growth uh, for ethanol producers here in the last few years uh, and has created some real economic hardship in rural America. So we, we absolutely welcomed the opportunity to defend the RFS and discuss this issue, convey our arguments before the Supreme Court yesterday morning. Uh, you know, we, we think overall it went pretty well. Uh, and we, we do think that the arguments that were put forth by the refiners uh, were met with some pretty stiff pushback, uh, and there seemed to be a good understanding that uh, the law is very clear that this exemption was meant to be temporary for small refiners, and the law does not allow EPA to extend exemptions that have lapsed. So you can't extend something that doesn't exist, and there did seem to be a good uh, recognition and appreciation of that argument uh, across the bench yesterday. And a lot of that argument was centered around that word extension, right? Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, the, the whole thing really boils down to what did Congress mean by extension. And, you know, certainly the, the refiners are arguing, well, that they should be able to get an exemption any time that they ask for one. Um, they, they, they attempted to really kind of sweep the meaning of extension under the rug. Uh, and like I said, they got some stiff pushback from some of the justices on that, and, and Chief Justice Roberts and, and Justice Thomas and, and Sotomayor and Kagan, for example, all really pushed back pretty hard. And in fact, uh, Justice Thomas said, you know, it seems a little bit odd, those were his words, uh, to think of, a, of an extension uh, for something that has already terminated. And so, you know, we, we argued, of course, that an extension has a, has a clear meaning, and especially when you look at it in the context of, 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 of this statute and the purpose of the RFS, um, you know, this, this program was, was always meant to funnel down the number of small refineries that are exempt from these requirements year by year until, you know, until all of them are in compliance. Uh, so, yeah, but, but like you said, a lot of it hinges on that, that one word and, and what exactly Congress meant by that and, and to, you know, to really understand that, you have to look at all the words surrounding uh, that term and, and the purpose and, and text and history of the statute. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a, a real close watcher of Supreme Court cases, so uh, I don't know if I read it correctly, but you can kind of sometimes, maybe you get, you get the feeling by the questions certain justices ask 
maybe which way they're leaning. Now, Justice Breyer had some tough questions on the biofuel side, saying that uh, basically the markets tend to change year to year, and Congress could not foresee the impact of the fluctuation these uh, biofuel credit prices could have on refiners, and and seemed to say that uh, you know uh, there's a problem there, and it created some kind of, of chaos. What was your what's your side's response to that? Yeah, Justice Breyer uh, did, did ask that, uh, you know, that line of questioning, and, and Justice Kavanaugh had, had similar questions, and, and that was really in response to the suggestion that we kept hearing over and over from the Refiners' Council that the RFS and, and RINs are just going to put them out of business unless they get these exemptions moving forward. And, of course, there's no proof of that. There's no evidence of that. Uh, these small refineries, including the three at issue in this case, have complied with the RFS in the past. They've shown that they can comply with the RFS. They've shown that they can recover those compliance costs, those rent costs. Um, and so that's something our council and, and EPA's council did a good job of explaining yesterday is that, hey, refiners, uh, you know, they recover these rent costs by marking up the cost of their refined products that they're selling uh, in, in the, into the wholesale market. Uh, they also showed that you know, there haven't been refineries going out of business in the past uh, due to compliance with the RFS. There's no evidence that that's happened, and there's no reason to believe it would going further or going, you know, going forward. So, uh, but, you know, I, like you say, Mike, this, this was clearly an argument that uh, from the refiners that, that got some attention. Um, and, uh, you know, I feel like our, our side did the best they could in, in assuring uh, the, the, the justices that uh, the RFS is not in any way um, going to threaten the, the viability of these refiners going forward. Jeff, if you lose this case, what does it mean for the biofuels industry? Well, we don't think we're going to lose, Mike. We, we think we're going to win this case on the merits. Um, however, uh, you know, I think it's important to remember that the refiners are only asking the Supreme Court to review just one piece of the Tenth Circuit Court's decision, and that's this issue of, of what did Congress mean by the word extension. There were two other aspects of that Tenth Circuit decision that are not being reviewed um, that EPA is going to have to figure out what to do with regardless of the outcome of this Supreme Court case. Uh, and those other two aspects are, you know, the Tenth Circuit said, hey, uh, EPA has been granting to refineries, uh, granting exemptions to refineries um, that haven't shown that the source of this so-called economic harm is compliance with the RFS itself. They're saying, hey, it's been a bad year for, for the refining sector, so we deserve an exemption. And, and the Tenth Circuit said that's not, uh, you know, that, that's, that's not how this program was designed to operate. So EPA would still have to contend with that finding from the Tenth Circuit, um, as well as this issue of, of compliance cost recovery. The Tenth Circuit said, hey, if a refinery can't show that they are, um, you know, not able to pass along their compliance costs somehow, then they they, they do not deserve, uh, or should not be considered eligible for an exemption. So, you know, those two, those are, you know, those those two aspects of the Tenth Circuit decision uh, remain on the table, and EPA is going to have to figure out what to do with those, you know, irrespective of the outcome of the Supreme Court case. You know, as you said, you're confident you're going to win the case on its merits. I, I think. There was some sense of relief that you finally got your day in court and, and at the highest court, at the highest level, you got to lay this thing out that's been brewing and debated for so long now. 
Well, that's right. I mean, this is this we filed this suit back in 2017, um, so it's it's been a long time coming, uh, and you know we we finally we we felt like it was probably a done deal uh, after the Tenth Circuit decision. Uh, we were a bit surprised that the Supreme Court agreed to review this case, uh, but there's nowhere else it can go from here. So we're expecting a decision in June on this case, and and that should once and for all. Uh, you know, clarify the path forward for small refinery exemptions, and, and hopefully put this issue behind us and 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 get uh, get everyone focused back on on you know enforcing the RFS as intended by Congress and and moving this industry forward. So now we wait for June. It seems like we're always circling a date in the future, right? <laughs> That's right, Mike. It does seem like we're always looking forward to the next the next big date, and and we don't know exactly when, um, but. You know, it does sound like sometime in June we should have a decision uh, on this, which is n- not too far away, and and certainly a speedier time frame than you than you see in, in some of the uh, appellate courts. So, uh, looking forward to to a decision. Uh, and you know, again, we continue to believe that the lower court's decision should, should be affirmed, and and we certainly put our best foot forward yesterday uh, in that regard. What happens? with all those lost gallons due to these uh, waivers? Well, that's that's another issue that EPA is going to have to sort out um, in the wake of, of this decision. Um, you know, it, it could certainly be argued that if, if EPA, uh, you know, if the Supreme Court affirms the, the Tenth Circuit's uh, ruling that EPA abused its authority in granting these exemptions, then that logically means that EPA abused its authority in, in granting dozens of other exemptions in the past. Um, and there certainly would be an argument that, uh, okay, with this ruling, with this precedent now out there, uh, you know, our industry could go back and, and ask EPA uh, to recover those lost gallons in order for them to be consistent and in compliance with this court's decision. So, you know, that that's kind of a, a second step or, or, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But that's certainly something we're keeping our eye on. All right, Jeff, as always, thanks for the update. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Mike. Take care. Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. So we'll wait for the Supreme Court decision in June. But as he said, there'll be other related issues uh, even after that to, to be addressed. Up next, President Biden in proposing to impose higher capital gains taxes on inherited assets, but says he'll protect farms and family-owned businesses. We'll talk about that with Danielle Beck with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association next on AOA. Cenex Premium Diesel comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn to optimize performance in all engines. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we examine how the modern cooperative system solves today's biggest challenges. We'll be talking to CHS experts and farmers and ranchers just like you, and we'll learn how cooperatives apply innovation and technology to help co-op owners get more value every day. So join us for Around the Table every Tuesday, or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. How many acres are you keeping an eye on? Another pair of eyes could be very helpful in protecting your ROI, especially ones that are highly trained. And that's what you'll get with an FS Crop Specialist. They can spot issues you might not even know you have using the latest technology, including thermal, drone, and NDVI imaging. Then they can get an early treatment plan started. 
Contact your local FS Crop Specialist to learn more about our crop scouting services. It's one more way FS is bringing you what's next. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. According to Arlen Suderman with Stone X, the primary focus for corn traders currently is perceived Chinese buying and declining Brazilian crop conditions that could further tighten the global balance sheet, although dryness concerns are rising for the Midwest as well. On the Board of Trade, July corn trading two and three quarters lower at 6.51 and three quarters. The December contract down 11 and a half cent at 5.50 and three quarters. For soybeans, the July contract trading a half a cent higher at 15.19 and three quarters. The November contract down nine cents at 13.33 and a half cent. For wheat, Chicago wheat July trading eight and a half cent lower at 7.24. Kansas City wheat July trading nine and a half cent lower at 7.01 and three quarters. Minneapolis spring wheat July trading seven cents lower at 7.40 and a fraction of a cent. The May contract down seven and a fraction at 7.32 and a half cent. Yesterday, cattle futures just could not hold on to positive territory through the end of the day. However, that may change Wednesday as grain futures exhibited substantial losses overnight. This could be enough to trigger aggressive buying for futures. The large increase of cash Tuesday may support hog futures on Wednesday. For livestock on the Board of Trade, the August live cattle contract up 62 cents at 117.90. The October contract up 52 cents at 122.62. For feeder cattle, the August contract up 87 at 150.95. September up 72 cents at 152.92. For lean hogs, the June contract up $2.60 at 109.27. The July contract up 230 at 107.62. In the outside markets, the Dow is down 152 points, the NASDAQ composite up 20, the S&P 500 up 8. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. And in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cinex Premium Diesel. Cinex Premium Diesel, a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, so President Biden is proposing a $1.8 trillion package, $1.8 trillion package of spending. And to pay for it, he's proposing a higher capital gains tax on inherited assets and would eliminate 
the practice of stepping up the bases for gains in excess of $1 million or $2.5 million per couple when combined with existing real estate exemptions, and says we'll make sure the gains are taxed if the property is not donated to charity. He also says that uh, he'll protect farms and other family-owned businesses that continue in operation. Let's sort through all this with Danielle Beck, Senior Executive Director of Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. A lot in here, Danielle. What's your takeaway? You know, for 15 pages, uh, there certainly is a lot in here, and there's a lot that, you know, I think we need to read between the lines. It's hard to make predictions because, you know, ultimately Congress is going to have to translate this 15-page proposal into what will likely be hundreds, if not thousands, of pages of legislative text. But, you know, in terms of what's in here, it's an American Families Plan. The president wants to focus on ways we can bolster American families, bolster the middle class, but... Uh, the proposed changes to, uh, you know, eliminating the step up in basis and also even, you know, the elimination of like kind exchanges for real estate, uh, you know, that will hurt our nation's family owned farms and ranches, our, our family agricultural operations. And so, uh, you know, we're going to be working with Congress as best we can to ensure that, uh, you know, they do the right thing on some of this and they don't, you know, try to pay for an infrastructure package on the backs of farmers and ranchers. Yeah, how, I, I, I'm a little confused here when the administration says they're going to protect farms and other family-owned businesses, but at the same time eliminate stepped-up basis. Now, how, how do you do both of those? You know, I don't think you can. You know, assets in agriculture are held by, you know, one owner for several decades, uh, and then that basis gets reset, you know, whether it's the value of the land, the equipment, livestock, on the date of the owner's death when it's you know, then transitioned over to the next generation of agricultural producers. And so eliminating that step up would have a massive impact on our family-owned operations. You know, it, we, we commissioned a study along with a coalition NCBA belongs to, and the, the EY report uh, estimates that a repeal of the step up in basis via tax at death would uh, equate to basically 80,000 jobs uh, lost in each year of the first 10 years, and then 100,000 jobs lost each year thereafter. And for every uh, $1 raised in GDP, or $1 raised in revenue, excuse me, uh, it would decrease U.S. GDP by the same amount, or $10 billion annually uh, over a 10-year period of time. For ag producers specifically, a repeal in the step-up would basically equate a one-time tax payment with 280% uh, your annual income, at least based on one specific case study that EY ran on a cow-calf operation. Uh, and so, you know, we know that this could be devastating. The devil is in the details. And so ultimately, whatever protections for family-owned businesses and farmers, um, it, you know, he has in mind, Congress is going to have to decide upon. And so, uh, you know, our focus needs to be on working with Congress right now. So you're saying these protections for farms that he's talking about, you want to see them, right? Do you, I mean, it sounds good that there, there are maybe protections there, but until you see them, how do you know? Exactly. Well, and, you know, I don't know that there really are, there's a good way to provide protections while at the same time still repealing the step up. I mean, I think you risk throwing the baby out with the bathwater when you, you get into that, the weeds there. Um, and I think, you know, one of the, the challenges we have and something that's a huge risk for us is there are, um, I think, folks on the Hill who don't understand the nature of agricultural production. And so they've talked about potentially carving out, uh, you know, relief, quote unquote, for small operations. But they don't realize that, you know, economy of scale, um, 
these operations, I, you know, I, I think factory farms are family-owned farms. There's no such thing as a factory farm. Um, and so large farms will be hurt by this too. And those are the ones that drive, you know, rural economies. They're the backbone of the, the local communities that they support. Um, you know, you're really playing with fire here if you try and um, make changes to this longstanding provision in the tax code. We're talking with Danielle back with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Danielle, I keep repeating this over and over. My concerns about any time, and it doesn't matter what party you're, any time a politician is trying to convince you that a spending plan is going to be paid for by taxing only the rich, and therefore for most of you, you don't have to worry about it. It's not going to really impact you. I always say beware because one way or another, it, it does affect all of us. I, I mean, it filters down. You, it may not be a direct tax in many ways, but it's an indirect tax. I mean, you wind up paying in several different ways. Oh, absolutely. Well, and if you just think about land values for agriculture and the the rate of change over the years, um, you know, it, it's, it's really astronomical. I mean, there's one county in Georgia uh, that the per acre uh, value right now is over $46,000 per acre. Uh, and that's up, you know, from $2,000 per acre, you know, two or three decades ago. Uh, you know, the majority of farms is pretty small there. They only have about, you know, 40 or so farms in that specific county, all of which are really small. But when you're looking at $46,000 an acre, uh, you know, even if you've got a, a 10 acre operation, that's still going to kill you. Uh, and so, you know, there's an impact here for every single operation, regardless of size. Um, you know, family businesses are going to suffer if, you know, Congress does decide to uh, try and pay for an infrastructure package by eliminating the step up. So we're going to continue working uh, with all of our allies on Capitol Hill. You know, there's a lot that needs to happen uh, in order for this I think proposal to become legislative text and there's a lot of negotiation that's going to be going on. And so we're, we're calling on our members to engage, uh, you know, the, the site that we had tilted up on our, our webpage policy.ncba.org. We had a section where you could go and, uh, you know, send a comment to your member of Congress. It was focused on the estate tax because that's what we thought was going to be on the, the docket or the chopping block here. It's now we're retooling that text, focusing on stepped up basis, like kind exchanges, and calling all on all of our members and producers to engage because it's it's really critical that their voices here heard throughout this process. Yeah, because it looks like he's not proposing any changes to the estate tax, although he is proposing to raise the top individual tax rate from 37 to 39.6 percent and require all households with incomes of more than a million to pay that rate on all their income, including capital gains. Is that right? That's true. That's true. But, you know, you know, even without changes to the estate tax, I think stepped up basis is just as big of a threat, if not greater, when it comes to generational transfer. And that's not just for, you know, multi-generational operations that exist right now. It's also for future uh, agricultural operations, beginning farmers and ranchers who would someday like to pass their farm on to, you know, their kids and grandkids after that. I mean, we have a a long-standing history of agricultural production in this country. And in order to preserve that, we need to preserve provisions like the step-up and basis. All right. So, as you said, negotiations will happen in Congress. Now, on the one hand, you have uh, the the president and in the party that controls Congress. So you would, we've seen already they can get some things pushed through because they have the majority. But on the other hand, I would think... Even some of those Democrats in Congress 
have got to be hearing from from their constituents about concerns over things like this. So that's where the negotiation part comes, right? I mean, uh, I would not think it would just be a slam dunk that it would go through. Absolutely. There are certain pressure points. There are some great moderates in the Senate who I think are very attentive to the needs of their, you know, ag producers back home. And so, you know, we're keeping a, a close line of communication with the right folks. And we're, again, we're asking our producers to do the same because uh, their their voices, their stories matter. And their very real life impact of some of these changes is going to make a difference as to whether um, or not these senators vote yes or no or you know, even during the negotiation process, what ultimately uh, makes it into the text. And so uh, we're, we're going to keep a, a steady drumbeat and try and keep the pressure on for as long as we can until uh, the deal is done, I guess. Yeah, because there'll be this battle waged in the uh, court of public opinion, and and the administration obviously is going to promote all the things, all the different ways you're going to get money and assistance and aid and help and uh, look at all these different uh, groups of people that will be helped by it. That will be their emphasis, obviously, not so much on how to pay for it. Exactly. I, you know, the amount of money that has been spent in the last couple of years is really mind-blowing, Mike. Yes. It, it, it's staggering. I mean, uh, these trillion-dollar packages that are out there, I mean, they're just, I know, we throw that trillion-dollar figure around so easily these days, it seems like. So, yeah, it's got to be paid for somehow, some way. All right, Danielle, thank you very much. It's something, obviously, we'll keep a close watch on. Appreciate your help. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Danielle Beck, Senior Executive Director of Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. I mean, this is a a huge issue to be watching as the president proposes his $1.8 trillion package of social benefits, expanded child nutrition assistance, health insurance subsidies, free community college, a lot of things in there that will be very appealing to a lot of people. But you have to look at the pay-for side, and it looks like it's not a battle going to be over the estate tax, but it's going to be over stepped-up basis. And we're going to have more on this. We'll have a CPA on with us tomorrow to take a closer look at this proposal and its uh, potential impact on agriculture. So that's coming up on tomorrow's program. Meanwhile, uh, planting's rolling along throughout much of the country. Showers slowing things down here or there. So we're trying to keep an update. Yesterday we talked with uh, Charlie Cruz in the boot heel of Missouri, talking about planting going on there. Today we're going to go to the state of Nebraska. Greg Anderson plants all soybeans. We're going to check in with him, see how much he has done. That's coming up next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, diesel that doesn't mess around. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half 
don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. Do you know how to keep food safe at home? Clean, separate, cook, and chill. The easy lessons of clean, separate, cook, and chill will help you protect your family and be food safe. Clean. Wash hands and utensils to avoid spreading bacteria when preparing food. Separate. Use different cutting boards for meat, poultry, seafood, and veggies. Cook. You can't tell it's done by how it looks. Always use a food thermometer. Chill. Keep the fridge at 40 degrees or below to keep bacteria from growing. Food safety risks at home are more common than most people think. The USDA is your partner in being food safe. Clean, separate, cook, and chill. For more information, visit BeFoodSafe.gov or call 1-888-MP-HOTLINE. When it comes to the crops you plant, we know that you want to maximize the yield of each seed. In order to do that, you need every plant to emerge on the same day. The problem is, you don't know if this is actually happening. We understand what it's like to be in the cab at harvest, wondering why a field is yielding lower than expected, which is why we're offering you our free emergence flagging kit. Here's how it works. Go to precisionplanting.com forward slash free and request your free emergence flagging kit. We'll send you a kit that includes multiple colored flags, a seed digger, and instructions. The first day your plants start coming up, follow the kit instructions to flag the new emergers each day. You'll gain a much clearer picture of how consistently your plants are emerging. Get your free emergence flagging kit today at precisionplanning.com forward slash free. Don't wait. Kits are limited. That's precisionplanning.com forward slash free for your free emergence flagging kit. A cold front can slow the world to a crawl, but with Cenex Premium Diesel, your fleet can power through. Cenex Roadmaster XL Seasonally Enhanced comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn, optimizing cold weather performance over typical number two diesel. So rather than complaining about the cold, own it with Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel diesel that doesn't mess around. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, we're joined now by Ethan Lane, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, with the talk about sustainability and reducing carbon footprints and things like that. Where does the beef industry stand in all this? We have this sort of push and pull with the environmental community on this topic because they always tend to pull from international climate numbers and carbon emission numbers when talking about the U.S. cattle industry. We're a fraction of those global numbers, so when we get into some of these conversations, it's critical that there is an understanding understanding of the fact that the U.S. cattle production system is the gold standard in the world, less than 2% of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States relative to 145 or 15% globally for livestock production. What we do is the most efficient means of cattle production in the world across 600 million acres of the U.S. landmass, and we do it upcycling inedible proteins that also create habitat for wildlife and do all these other things for ecosystem services. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. 
Adams on Agriculture prides itself on bringing top leaders in the egg industry right to your radio speakers. AOA wants to continue that conversation right to your fingertips. Follow AOA on Twitter at AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams himself at the handle Mike Adams Egg. You will receive real-time highlights of the show and keep up with which convention or industry meeting AOA is attending. That's AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams Egg. We hope to see you online. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. With Cenex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. As we continue to take a look at how planting is going here in 2021, we go to the state of Nebraska, check in with Greg Anderson, soybean farmer in that state. Greg, how are you and how's planting going? Well, I'm doing fine, Mike. Thank you. And planting is really uh, coming along very nicely. I'm about one-third done of soybean planting, but I grow all soybeans, so no corn. And these last couple of days were, were really good for getting a seed in the ground. Uh, we had about 40 hundredths of rain early this morning, so there won't be any planting today, but it looks like it might shine off uh, later uh, this week, midweek to late week, it could, could get some more acres in. Did you get started about on time for you on average or a little later? Well, I never really circle a date on the calendar to kind of uh, uh, make a, a mark to start, but I kind of go by the conditions, and I actually was able to get in a little bit on Saturday to start and then uh, picked it up again on Monday. And, uh, you know, we really came through the month of April uh, rather chilly and cold. It was uh, many days uh, in early to, to mid-April were well below normal, so those soil temperatures were not warming up very fast, and uh, we had some wet weather early in the month. Then it uh, seemed like it uh, dried off. We went a couple of weeks without any rain at, uh, at all, actually, and uh, the, the weather still remained cold. We had uh, high temperatures, a good 15, 20 degrees below normal, and lows uh, many of those nights uh, mid to mid-April to the third week of April were in the mid-20s. So everything was kind of on pause, but uh, then it broke and it seemed like uh, it started warming up and uh, the soil was right, so it's time to uh, get a start on it. Uh, as you said, you plant all soybeans, but as you talk to uh, folks around you, uh, with these prices right now, uh, you know, a lot of uh, good options about to what to plant and uh, try to take advantage of those markets. Did you see any of your neighbors switching acres uh, to one crop or another this year? Well, most of my neighbors and the people in the immediate area, I think, still pretty much stick to a 50-50 corn-soy rotation. However, uh, what I did notice, Mike, it's a little bit different from other years, that uh, most of the people around me right now, if they're planting, they are planting soybeans. And I think what they're doing is just waiting for those soil temperatures to warm up a little bit more for corn. Uh, they're getting their beans in the ground. A few operators who might uh, have the equipment and the manpower uh, probably are planting both. But by and large, uh, I know a couple of neighbors were planting soybeans right along with me in the same uh, section there. And so uh, people are seeing the the jump start to getting a good uh, start, getting those beans early. Uh, they're sensitive to sunlight. They need the uh, early planting to really uh, have the most yield potential, and I think that's what people are doing. So you feel pretty good about where you're at right now then? Well, I do. I, I look at the calendar, and I've never been this far along this early. 
Uh, there are some uh, forecasts to rain for early next week. Uh, however, the uh, temperature is supposed to be much above normal, and so uh, that's, a, that's a nice uh, condition to have is to kind of work in between the showers and in the rain and get some in, and then the, the warmer soil temperatures will be most welcome to uh, get the crop emerged evenly and uh, get off to a good start. Do you need the moisture? Are you in a dry area? Well, what's really great, is, Mike, is that uh, in March, uh, right here, we had six inches of rain during the month. And uh, as we were in a drought monitor to uh, abnormally dry to uh, really dry, that uh, wiped all that out. And actually, the, the rains in the first part of April uh, were, were keeping us out of that drought monitor. So east-central Nebraska, virtually the – actually, the, the – uh, eastern half of Nebraska is out of a drought situation, which is really good. Uh, we, we needed the moisture, and uh, we're caught up, and uh, we're, we're going to just keep on welcoming those rains as they come in a timely fashion to keep us going. We have good, uh, ample moisture in the subsoil to uh, carry us, you know, in the in the early summer, and uh, so we're in good shape uh, in that regard. Yep, so far so good. That's good to hear. Uh, I wanted to ask you this because you have been a leader in the biodiesel industry for many years. And now we're seeing this huge demand for renewable diesel and it looks like really opening the doors for soybean growers, uh, uh, opportunities, uh, you know, greater demand than ever for soy oil. Uh, you, you have to feel pretty good about uh, when you think back all the years of, of working to develop this product and working to develop markets to see this starting to happen like this. It's, it's, it's really exciting, Mike, to see the growth of the industry, and now it seems like it's going to a new level with uh, more renewable diesel coming online and uh, plans for for new plants and expansions and that type of thing. Um, it is just great to see the production go up and the usage uh, demand uh, for soybean oil increase. Uh, we're going to be needing to grow a lot more uh, soybeans for, for the oil to uh, serve this market. That's a good position for U.S. farmers to be in, to have a, a market that is uh, active and growing and expanding and demanding uh, our product, which uh, we produce very well across the, across the country. Many are comparing it to the uh, the takeoff of the ethanol market a few years ago. Do you see similarities there? Well, in some regards, I think there are some similarities. You know, uh, the biodiesel, renewable diesel industry is uh, relatively still young in the United States. Ethanol was established before uh, we were, and, uh, and we, you know, it was a time there where ethanol uh, started to really take off and really become established, and I think... Uh, that is on the horizon for the biodiesel and renewable diesel industry in the United States. We've set a very aggressive goal of 6 billion gallons by 2030. I have no doubts that we're going to reach that and exceed that. And, uh, you know, diesel continues to power America. It continues to power fleets and transportation, and uh, we're going to be in that market for a long, long time to come, many decades to come. And uh, it's pretty exciting to see a renewable fuel made from agricultural products that uh, farmers can serve. Come a long ways from those days when soy oil was considered a glut on the market, a drag on the market. Oh, I remember those days, as you do, Mike, <laughs> where uh, we had so much soybean oil we didn't know what to do with. It was just sitting in storage and stockpiles and uh, really putting a drag on the soybean price. And now we see that it's really driving a lot of the demand and adding uh, about 13% to our farm gate value of every bushel of beans. And so that's a good thing that, that Chekhov uh, has really been a, a great thing for that in developing biodiesel. Yeah, it's quite a turnaround indeed. Greg, good to talk with you. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Mike. Have a great day.
U2 Nebraska soybean farmer Greg Anderson. Thanks for joining us today on AOA. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow. Cenex Premium Diesel comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn to optimize performance in all engines.